Well, there's a true story from World War II that was made into a movie. It was called The Great Escape. Now, in the Hollywood version, there were embellishments. They did things like have Steve McQueen jumped a barbed wire fence on a motorcycle, and they included American troops in the story, when the real story was about a group of Allied prisoners of war who had escaped from a German prison camp called Stalag Luf III. Now, what the POWs did to prepare for this escape is they were secretly digging three different tunnels in the camp. And they were making forged travel documents and clothing to uh, cover 220 POWs that they planned to have escaped from the camp. As the preparations were being made, the plan was pushed up because a favorable night came. And on that night, 76 of these prisoners of war were able to get outside of the camp. And after they escaped, it was actually while the escape was in progress, the guards noticed them coming out of the escape tunnel by the woods. And uh, 50 of them were caught by the Gestapo and executed. Another 23 were found over time and sent to various camps. And in total, only three of the 76 actually made it all the way to freedom. As we turn in our Bible today to the end of Galatians chapter 3, what we're going to see is that Paul tells us about another great escape that took place. And this was a great escape made from another prison, not through the efforts of man, but instead by what God did for us. As we've been going through this letter to the Galatians, we've seen that Paul has made clear all throughout that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It has nothing to do with the efforts of man in order to be saved. The Bible tells us that every person who has ever lived on planet Earth is a prisoner in the most maximum security prison ever. It's a prison called sin. And none of us can escape from that prison on our own. Now, there have been many attempts through the years. People have tried to get to God by being good, by keeping the law, various things. But uh, all of these efforts fall short. That's why the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we're going to see today in Galatians chapter 3, God sets us free from the law and sin through what Jesus Christ did to save us. So I invite you to look with me now in your Bible, as we begin reading in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 23 through 29. It says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, if you've been with us as we've been going through Galatians, you know that Paul was battling a group of Jewish legalists called the Judaizers. These were uh, Jews who were saying that in order to be saved, especially speaking to these Gentile believers down in this area of Galatia, they said if you are to be saved, you have to follow the rules and rituals of Judaism. You have to take on the covenant sign of circumcision. You have to uh, follow the Mosaic law. But as we saw earlier in chapter 3, Paul destroyed that argument. He went all the way back to the very foundation of the Jewish roots and race. He pointed to Abraham, who was the patriarch. 
Abraham was the one who was both the father of the nation and the one who had received the covenant sign of circumcision. And Paul says in Galatians 3, 6 through 7, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. As we looked at that passage a few weeks ago, you'll remember I told you this was a quote from Genesis 15, 6. Paul was quoting from the first book of the Old Testament. And in it, as he talks about Abraham having faith in God and it being reckoned or credited to him as righteousness, we talked about what this word means. It's an accounting term. It speaks of a payment that is made and that payment is then taken and it is applied to the account of someone who owed a debt. And in this case, it's talking about the Messiah, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to die on a cross. He died on the cross because the Bible says there is a debt owed. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so we owe this penalty of death. And the only one who could pay that penalty is the one who did not owe it. The only one who could be the perfect and permanent sacrifice was the sinless son of God. And so when Christ came and he went to the cross and he gave his life to die for us, the payment was made. And then we talked about the process of imputation, which is a theological concept that says that payment of Christ was taken and imputed or credited to our account. The payment was made. And the righteousness of Christ was then imputed to us. And this is why as Jesus died on the cross, he said in John 19.30, it is finished, literally paid in full, as he said to Teleste. And so this is the the thing that Paul has already talked about earlier in chapter 3. And these Judaizers who were saying, look, following the Mosaic law will set you free. Paul says, no, remember what the law did in that same sermon. We talked about the curse of the law. All the law really did was serve to indict us. It pointed to our disobedience. It pointed to how we were sinners, and thus we owe this penalty. And here Paul builds on that as he pictures the law not as being something that sets us free, but rather he says it's a prison guard. Look again at Galatians 3.23. He says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Now, this verb shut up isn't like when you tell somebody to be quiet, quit talking. Uh, This is a verb that means imprisonment. And so what Paul is literally saying is the law put us into prison. And he further fleshes this out by saying the very thing that keeps us under custody, the guard over us, is the law. He personifies the law here as a jailer of a guilty, condemned sinner. Uh, All of us who are that, who are on death row awaiting God's judgment. And Paul says that as we try to justify ourselves by doing the works of the law, the law doesn't set us free. Instead, the law serves as the parole board who sit there as you come before it and they check off your transgressions and they say, no, you're not ready for release. Earlier in Galatians 3.19, Paul said, what is the purpose then that the law serves? And his answer was the law reveals humanity's sinfulness, our utter inability to save ourselves. Because the law was never intended to save us. It was never a system of salvation. Rather, it was designed to point us to our need for a savior. And Paul builds on this uh, through a second analogy in verse 24. He says there, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, when you read that the law is our tutor, 
This doesn't mean that it merely uh, is a teacher that gives us knowledge. You think about a tutor that you may go to to help you understand some difficulty you're having in a subject. Uh, Paul doesn't use the Greek word didaskalos here. That's a word for teacher. Instead, he uses the word uh, pedagogos. And pedagogos was a Greek word that spoke of a child custodian. It spoke of a guardian that was placed over and attended to a child. Um, Under the the first century Roman rule that Paul is writing to, Paul is looking around and saying, what is is something everybody sees on a day-to-day basis that would clarify for them what we're talking about? And he says, oh, think of the law as a pedagogue. And people who walked the streets uh, in Galatia, which was an imperial colony of Rome, they would look around and they'd say, yeah, we see pedagogues all the time. These were typically a highly educated slave whose role was to be the guardian of the master's children. And starting about the age of six uh, until they reached puberty, the guardian, the pedagogue, would take the child to and from school. They would escort the children to school, and then when it was out, they would bring them home. They were not the teacher at school. They were the one who got them to school and back. And then when they were home, they were the ones who oversaw the children's uh, behavior. And if you look at ancient drawings of pedagogues, they usually showed them with a, a you know, switch or a stick in their hand. They were known as very severe disciplinarians. Uh, many were harsh to the point of cruelty. And what Paul is telling us here is the job of the law as the pedagogue was to keep us on the straight and narrow. It was to watch our behavior. It was to tell us, stay in line. And when we we were not in line, there was punishment that was brought in order to bring us uh, to an understanding that we were going off the straight and narrow path. And just as this tutor takes the child to school, what Paul tells us here is the law was designed to take us to Christ. It was never designed to save us. It was designed to show us uh, who Christ was and then understanding he's the promised Messiah, we can be justified by faith by our liberator, the Son of God. Maybe a picture that might help in our context in our day would be to say that the Old Testament law is like a school crossing guard. If any of you walked to school as a child, you know you would have these dangerous intersections where there would be a man or a woman there who is the crossing guard, and they would tell you to wait, and then when they wanted to take you across, they would guard you from uh, the traffic by stopping the cars and, and getting you safely across so you could make it to school. Now, a school crossing zone isn't the destination of the student. They don't leave the house and come there and say, we're going to hang out here all day. Uh, it's the job of the guard to get you across to your destination. And the school crossing guard is not the teacher. Uh, They were simply the guardian. And this is the picture of what the law did. And the reason the law came is so that we would understand uh, our our sinfulness, that we were uh, in need of a, a Savior to be forgiven for our sins. Friends, unless men and women realize they're living in violation of God's law, then they really see no need uh, for a savior and for grace. Grace is meaningless to a person who feels no inadequacy, who feels they don't need help. Uh, He or she sees no purpose in being saved if they don't realize they're lost. John Stott puts it this way. He says, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. 
But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin and guilt and condemnation, we must not stay there, but we must let Moses send us to Christ. This is how law and grace come together. Uh, unless we see how helpless and lost we are as sinners, the, this, the message of grace is meaningless to people. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great the payment Christ made for us was, how great grace really is. If we think we're pretty good and, and have a shot at getting to God on our own, then, then we don't see a need to go to Christ. Uh, now, if you're somebody who's sitting here this morning saying, well, Roger, I'm kind of in that camp. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I uh, do some things that are, you know, small, little, little white sins. I do little things. But, you know, better, compared to other people, I'm, I'm pretty good. And so I think when I die, God's going to let me into heaven. Uh, now, if you think that's the case, I want you to read Romans chapter 3. Because in Romans 3.10, it tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. None. Romans 3.23, as we've already talked about, says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't say, well, you're better than most people, so I guess I'll let you into heaven. Let me illustrate the process this way. Imagine that uh, Bill Gates, I mean, you know who Bill Gates is. He's one of these guys who has unlimited wealth. He's multi-billionaire. And uh, Bill Gates says, you know, I've always wanted to see somebody swim from the coast of California to Hawaii. So he says to entice people to do that, I'm going to set up a, a contest and I'm going to say that whoever can wade into the water in San Francisco Bay and swim all the way to the shores of Hawaii unaided, nonstop, without any help, will get $10 million. So he advertises in the, the papers and on the news, uh, there's a $10 million prize for anybody who can swim from California to Hawaii nonstop and unaided. Now, that's a lot of money. I'd like to do it, but uh, it's a long way from California to Hawaii, so nobody takes the offer. Bill Gates says, I really want to see somebody do this, so I'm going to give $100 million to anybody who can swim unaided, nonstop from California to Hawaii. Now, still nobody takes the offer. So Bill Gates raises the prize to $1 billion dollars. Now, a billion dollars is just too much money for people to pass up. So on the appointed day, a hundred people show up on the shore there in San Francisco Bay to swim nonstop to Hawaii unaided. And as these hundred swimmers wade into San Francisco Bay and begin to swim, 50 of them can't even get out of the, the Bay of San Francisco because of the strong currents that are there. Now, another 30 get farther out, but they give up after 10 miles. And then another 15 make it 20 miles out. At this point, all that's left are five Olympic swimmers. Uh, these are gold medalist level people who are, you know, super swimmers and long distance. Uh, and as they're continuing to swim to Hawaii, one by one, they also drop out and have to be, a re uh, be rescued. Now, at this point, there's just one swimmer left. And this person, let's say, makes it an amazing 200 miles. But at that point, the person also has to be rescued. It doesn't matter that they got 200 miles into the swim because there's still another 2,100 miles to go, right? 
The rules said that you had to make it all the way. And not one of them can do it. I said, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, you're better than most people or you were the one who made it the farthest. What God's standard is, is all or nothing. You have to keep the law perfectly, 100% of the time. Look at Galatians 3.10. Again, we talked about this in a past message, but it says in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And you'll remember we talked about James 2.10 that tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were hanging off a cliff and there was this huge chasm below you, say it's a mile down and, and, and you're hanging on and there's a chain that is holding you, and as you're looking down, you're, you're like, if, if this chain breaks, I'm going to die. Now, in a chain, there's multiple links. Let me ask you how many of those links have to break for you to die? How many? Just one, right? One link is broken and you die. The Bible has, the scriptures have 613 commandments in them. And God says if you break even one, one time, you're guilty of the penalty of death. The law is all or nothing. And that's why every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. God is a perfect God. God is a holy God. And his standard, when it says we've fallen short of the glory of God, his standard is perfection. And because we are all sinners, we are all under a penalty of death. Our only hope of getting to God is through the gift of his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What the law does is it shows us for who we really are, fallen sinners in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid that penalty in full. He closed the account, the wages of sin of death, and he covered it, which is why he said paid in full. And the prison door is now opened and we are set free. Now, as Christians who have come to Christ by faith and have been set free by faith, does that mean that we just throw the law aside? That God says, well, go out and live however you want. You can, you know, live a life of uh, wild abandonment and and neck deep in sin. Uh, No, that doesn't fit again with what is being said here. I want you to remember the picture Paul gave to us is of a child who was set free from his tutor. Now, any of you who are parents and are raising or have raised your kids know that the goal is to see them grow to maturity and launch out on their own. But as they do, you don't say, well, now that you're free, go live you know, a, a life contrary to every value that you've ever been taught growing up. The goal is that we want to see our children to live as productive, godly adults. We want them not to throw aside everything that is parents or uh, the things that we've taught them through the scriptures. We don't want all that thrown aside. What we want the person to do is to continue to live uh, like uh, they've been raised to be lived. The difference is this. When it says we've been set free from under our tutor, it means that that pedagogue who is standing there with a stick saying, I'm going to get you. Get, get out of line, you know. 
that person is no longer there. There's no longer this fear of discipline. There's no longer this loss of rewards uh, and, and privileges that the person is fearing. The picture is that as we grow in our faith in Christ and we become mature men and women, we understand this gift of grace and we respond out of love, not out of slavish obedience. We can continue to live according to the, the guidelines God has given us, not out of fear and we have to do this wondering are we in or out. Rather, it's because of what Christ did. We do it out of gratitude, uh, not slavish ob- obedience and fear. And as our life Uh, as we come to Christ and we live our life, in verses 25 through 29, Paul describes three differences uh, that we should be experiencing because of our new life in Christ. As you look at verse 26, first he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, we live in a world where uh, society likes to say, well, we're all sons of God, you know. Mahatma Gandhi uh, is as much a son of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the second part of that verse. When the declaration is made, you are all sons of God, it says, through faith in Christ Jesus. It's very important to see that's how we become a member of God's family. John 1.12 tells us, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, as Paul is writing these things, remember, this is the first century Roman society. And Paul is looking for illustrations that people in that day would understand. And as he's talking about the pedagogue, this tutor over the children that people saw walking the streets, people also saw what happened to children when they became adults. And so Paul draws in another illustration here uh, when he talks about we've been clothed with Christ. Now next next week we're going to come to Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians 4... We're going to see where Paul continues to unpack this picture of a child who grows and then becomes over, you know, the tutor is gone. He's now an heir and the inheritance he receives. And so Paul is fleshing out this picture of the process that happens for a child who becomes a full member of the family. And what he says in verses 25 through 29 here would have blown everybody's mind. Because you see that he's talking about slaves and women and Gentiles alongside what is said about Jewish men. You have to remember that Jewish men in that day, uh, if they were the self-righteous, pharisaical type, they had a prayer that they prayed every morning. When they woke up in the morning, they would say, I thank thee, God, that thou hast not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Does anybody pray that prayer every morning here? If you do, please don't raise your hand. Um, But as Paul is telling us here, he says the gospel has leveled the playing field. He says all people are equal in Christ regardless of birth, background, or social status. The gospel rejects racism. It rejects sexism. It rejects slavery. What the gospel tells us is we are all those who have come to faith in Christ, have been made full heirs through faith in receiving the gift of God and the the cross, the ground is level. He says in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there are two things I want to point out here that are not seen uh, readily apparent in most English translations. But when you read this in the original Greek text, 
Paul, as he's unpacking this truth, uh, there are two things that stand out. The first one is Paul changes the grammatical form. There's something called the first person, second person, and third person form of address. And in verse 25, Paul is speaking in the first person. But when he gets to verse 26, he changes it to the second person. Now, if you're saying, Roger, I didn't do so well in English grammar, tell me what that means. Well, here's what this Paul is doing. He's saying to the Gentile Christians, remember you have the Jews who had the covenants and promises, and the Gentiles were outside of this. And Paul says, because of what Christ did, he's brought you into uh, the family. There are still specific covenants and promises for Israel alone. The Gentile believers, the church, do not replace Israel. But he says, as far as the family of God is, you have been brought into the family, which is why he changes the address where he's addressing the Gentiles Christians specifically. When he says, you, hey, you Gentiles, you are all sons of God. The second thing that is sometimes missed is... Because the modern translations here try to say, well, we want to make things clear. Remember, he was talking about Gentiles. He was talking about women. How many of your translations, as you look at verse uh, 26 there, uh, say you are all children of God? If you have the word children instead of sons, raise your hand. Go ahead and look at your Bibles. Raise your hands high. I know there's more of you that have it than that. Some of you are going, I better get out of my email and look at the Bible app. Oh, there it is. All right, so it says children of God because I understand the heart of the translators. What they're trying to do is say, hey, look, we want to make sure that people understand men and women are part of the family of God. The problem is this. It's an improper translation because the Greek word that is used here is weos, and weos is a word that is a masculine-only form of son. It's like saying to my son, Miha, I mean, Miho, not Miha, right? I have daughters. Miha is my daughter. Miho is my son. Well, what he says here is, you are sons. Now, why does Paul use the word sons instead of saying children if he's trying to tell the women, hey, you've been brought into the family too? I want you to remember something about ancient societies, not just Jewish, but in many ancient societies, women were second-class citizens. Women had no rights. They couldn't own property. They had no legal standing. And so when Paul says to the women, you are sons, he's literally saying you have a legal standing as an heir in the family of God. When the modern translations go to a gender-neutral language, they neutralize the full force of the radical nature of what the gospel does. Because what Paul was saying to the women who were excluded from being able to inherit and have property rights and things. He says, oh no, ladies, you are full heirs of the kingdom. The cross has leveled the ground. You are of equal status in the family of God. And this is why he says you are sons of God, literally legal heirs, which was something that was forbidden to women. This is what's being talked about in verse 28, where it says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This isn't saying that God has obliterated the distinctions. Uh, I hear people tell me, well, you know, there are neither men or women or Jew nor Greek. We're all equal. And men today cannot physically have babies. 
God has not eradicated the gender difference. Jews today still have specific promises for Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. There are still racial and gender differences. There are still economic classes. And so this isn't saying that God has obliterated the distinctions. Rather, what it's saying is Christ has removed the barriers, the barriers between the races, the barriers between the sexes, and most importantly, the barriers between God and man. I want you to turn over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 11 through 18, uh, we see where Christ came in and he removed the barriers. It says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles... In the flesh you are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. You remember we talked about how the Jews thought they were of a higher status because they had this covenant sign of circumcision. So that's what's being talked about. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember I said God has invited the Gentiles into the family. Previously, God said, you are outside of the promises. You have no hope. This is the law. You are lost. You have nothing that you can do. Uh, the, the Jews have been promised a Messiah. You're outside of even that promise, they thought. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man and thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, what's being talked about here is an illustration of the temple. If you went to the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed in 70 AD, you would come up onto the temple mount and there was the outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where a, a non-Jewish person could come as far as a balustrade, a literal wall that divided the Jews' access from the Gentiles. And there was a placard on the wall that said, if any Gentile goes beyond this wall, he has his own death uh, on his own head. Essentially, you go beyond the wall, the penalty is death. Now, if you were a Jewish woman, you could go beyond the wall of separation to the Gentiles, but you had another wall that separated you from getting further into the temple complex because a woman could only come as far as the court of women. And then beyond that was another wall that uh, separated the court of the Israelites, and this is where Jewish men could go, but even there was a wall uh, that separated this court of Israelites from the court of the priests. And the priest would be back there offering the sacrifices and doing the things where the brazen altar was. And then there was the, the temple structure itself where only a, a select number of priests could go into the inner temple. And they too were separated by something called the veil. And beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies, which was the, the covenant seat uh, called the helismas, the, the covering, the, the, the seat of satisfaction and mercy. 
And this, once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil and he would apply blood of a sacrifice to make a a temporary covering for the sins of the nation. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you'll remember the scriptures tell us as he breathed his last, it says that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. God said this sign of separation that separated man from God because of our sin is removed. This sign of separation where women could not be with men, Gentiles with Jews. He says in the church, the walls are obliterated. If we were in an Orthodox synagogue in Israel right now, men and women wouldn't be together. Women would be on one side, men on the other, or up in the balcony versus the floor. He says, but as the church, we are together. We have been made into this new entity called the church. And this is what's being talked about when he says that God, uh, through the cross, put to death the enmity. The word enmity literally means hostility. It removed both the legal penalty as well as the wrath of God. It's why when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are accepted into full status as children of God, a son or a daughter of God, welcomed into the family. This process is described in Galatians 3.27, where it says, For all of you uh, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, this isn't speaking about water baptism. Rather, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens at the moment of salvation. Scriptures tell us that we are sealed and indwelt by the Spirit of God when we come to faith. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us this. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. As we come to faith, Galatians 3.27 says we are clothed with Christ. And this, again, is a picture that people in that day understood because as you think in terms of of the outward clothing, it shows the the filth of the world and the day-to-day dirt that we accumulate. In Isaiah 64.6, we're told, and and all our righteous deeds are like like a filthy garment. Remember I said earlier, some may be saying, well, I think I'm good enough to get to God. And as you show up at the gates of heaven saying, hey, God, I've gone through life and I've lived a pretty good life. I think you should let me in. Here's all my righteous deeds. And God says, do you realize how filthy you look? Do you realize all the sin you've committed? Do you realize the penalty that you owe? And what the believer has done is, as we talked about a moment ago, this imputation of Christ, the blood of the lamb has washed us clean. His payment is credited to our account. God doesn't look at us based upon who we are and what we did. He looks at us as who we are in Christ and what his son did for us when he died on the cross. And he says, it is based on the righteousness of my son that you are welcomed into heaven. In Galatians 3.13, we, we saw where Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. And as this happens, as we are accepted into the family of God, the scriptures present this picture of taking off our old way of life and laying it aside and putting on this new life in Christ. Uh, in Colossians 3.8-15, this is how this process is described. It says, but now you also put them all aside. He's talking about our old manner of life. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed by a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is, his, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So Paul, again, this is one of his favorite pictures of changing clothes to, to match the, the change in our life as Christians. But again, the Galatians that he's writing to in the first century would have understood perfectly this picture. Because when a child became a person who was set free from his guardian and was given the status of an adult, he literally changed his clothes. The, the children in Roman society would wear a toga that had a border on it. So as you walked around the streets, you could look at somebody and say, well, that person has the status of a child. But when they came to the point of manhood and they were given, the father would bring the son in and if he were adopting him into full status, he would take away the, the child toga and he would give him a toga uh, virilism, which literally means the manly toga, right? He'd say, look, you don't need to wear these little kid clothes anymore. You're a man. And this is a toga that designates that. And as he put it on and he walked the streets, everybody said he is a full citizen. He has all the rights of an adult Roman citizen. He is a full member of the family. He has all the rights of inheritance and all the things that come with that status. And so what Paul was telling these Galatian believers is, why are you listening to the Judaizers? The Judaizers are looking at you as, as sons of God who have full status. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 give up your manly toga, so to speak, and put back on the toga of the law. Put yourself back under the tutor. Put yourself back under the, the restrictions of, of not being able to have the full status of being a full member of the family of God. And Paul says, why? Why would you do this? He says, you are full members of the family. God has given you this gift of grace. And he says, so live like it. Live in the freedom that you have in Christ. And God offers this gift of grace to all of us today. Friends, if you're here today and you've been trying to work your way to God and you're living in fear of saying, am I good enough? If I were to die today, would I get to heaven? If, if God were to take me to, to heaven today, would I stand at the gate and God would look and go, man, you just haven't done it. Is that how you're living your life? God says, you don't have to live in fear. I've offered you freedom. I've offered you a gift of grace, and I offer it to you this morning. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not good enough. God would never welcome me home. Again, you're trying to put yourself back under the law and works. What the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 is God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. When it says we were yet sinners, it, it means that we were at our worst. We were in rebellion. We were far from God. We were disobeying him. When Jesus Christ came, he didn't come and die just for his friends. He didn't come and die for innocent bystanders. It says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God will welcome you this morning just as you are. You have to understand that you have a need for a Savior. And if you don't come to faith in Christ, then you are separated from him for all eternity. But if you will humble yourself and acknowledge your need for a Savior, if you will accept his gift of grace that he paid for on the cross, if you will receive his death in your place, the Bible says you will be saved. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our sins. He did not leave us to be separated from him for all eternity. He said, I want to welcome you into the family. I want you to come home with me as a son, as a daughter of mine. Let me illustrate it this way with a closing illustration. Imagine you're a parent. And you have a child that you love dearly, and one day this child is horribly murdered. Your son or your daughter is killed by somebody. And as you go out, uh, you're investigating what happened, you're looking for the killer, you want, you want this person to pay, and let's say you find the person who killed your child. And you find the person before the authorities do. If you decided, I'm going to kill this person, that would be vengeance. You could say, I want this person to suffer. I want them to die a horrible death. That would be vengeance. But if after you found the killer of your child, you called the authorities and the police come and they arrest the person and this person stands trial and you let them go through the legal system and they're found guilty and they're convicted, that would be called justice. They would get what they deserve, justice. And now if you as a parent at the time where you get to make the victim's impact statement, stand up in court and instead of saying to the judge, this horrible person who killed my child, I want them to suffer, I want, I want them to die, the death penalty, on and on, you know, you, you could do that. But if what you said instead is, Your Honor, this person is guilty. I understand they deserve the penalty of death for their crime. But what I want you to do is release them. I want you to let them walk out of this courtroom. Them dying for killing my child uh, will do nothing. I don't want that. Set them free. That would be called mercy. Now, if you took it a step farther and you said to the judge, Your Honor, this person's guilty, and what I want you to do is I want you not to take them to the death chamber and execute them. I want you to release them to my custody. And I want them to come to my house And I want them to live in my child's room. I want them to sleep in my child's bed. And I want them to sit at the dinner table where my child used to sit. And I want them to eat with me. And I don't want them just to live in my home. I want to formally adopt them as my child. That would be called grace. Is there anyone here who would do that? That's what God does with us. God says, you and I are responsible for the death of his son. Jesus died on the cross because of my sins and yours personally. Not some nebulous thought of sin out there. It's for what you did 
Every single point of disobedience is a sin that was worthy of death. You are as guilty for the death of Jesus as I am, as were the Jews in the first century. And God says, you are the killer of my son. And you deserve justice. You deserve to go to hell. You deserve eternal separation from me. But I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you not only what you... I'm, I'm going to give you mercy in that you're not going to get what you deserve. He says, I'm going to go a step farther and I'm going to give you grace where you get what you don't deserve. I'm going to invite you into the family to come live with me forever in heaven, to sit at the banquet table, to be a part of the family of God. Friends, that's what God offers to us today. That's what the gospel of grace is. And if you're here today and you've never received that gift of new and eternal life through what Jesus did for you, I invite you to do so now. I'm going to close with a prayer. Uh, There's nothing magic about the prayer. It's just your way of saying to God, I recognize my need for a Savior and I want to receive your gift to me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But you do have to humble your heart right now. You do have to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and to say, God, I accept your son's death in my place. If you would like to do that, I invite you to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the penalty of death for the times I've disobeyed you, the times I've broken your laws. God, I recognize I can't earn my way to heaven by being good. It is only a gift of your grace. And today I accept that gift. I accept your son Jesus as my savior. I accept the death that he died in my place. God, I believe the check he wrote, good for eternal life, is good. He showed it by rising from the dead three days after he died on the cross. I know, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I know, Jesus, you are the promised Messiah. And I know, Jesus, that you died to pay the penalty of death for me. And today I accept that gift of grace. Thank you, God, for making me a part of your family. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your family through your death, Jesus. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.